listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Well, if you have your Bible with you today, we're going to be turning to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 42 today. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 42 today. Just a little bit of context. We're going to dive right into it today. So just a little bit of context. We're we're coming off of a a couple of weeks where we've really, starting with the transfiguration in uh, chapter 9, We've really started to see Jesus uh, kind of setting his eyes towards Jerusalem. We see that phrase repeated a couple of times at the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10. And the emphasis of Jesus' ministry is starting to change. It's, it's not so much kind of proving himself and performing miracles and kind of establishing that there's a new work of God uh, it, that like he does in the, the early part of his ministry. At this point, he's beginning now to instead uh, reveal what that kingdom of God is going to be like. Uh, and what his disciples are going to be like, and to set his mind on accomplishing his purpose on the cross in Jerusalem. And much of the rest of Luke is is really kind of uh, both a journey from the northern part of Israel down to Jerusalem, uh, and then it's also this teaching that goes along with that as he ministers to his disciples and as he more intentionally tries to kind of show them, hey, this is what's different about kind of what we thought uh, it meant to be a follower of God, and, and what is a follower of God in, in my kingdom? And, and so that's kind of, there's a couple specific things that he says that, that somebody is going to be if they're a part of his kingdom, if they're a follower of Jesus, in just the few, chap, or the few verses before this, it's going to be somebody who forsakes all else. You know, we remember a couple of weeks ago how it's literally somebody who is willing to say, even more important than my own family. Even more important than my own home, I'm going to put Jesus before everything else. It's going to be somebody who's going to set their mind on kingdom things and not on earthly concerns. And it's going to be someone who, as he tells his disciples, who sees and knows Jesus. They're the ones who are a blessed part of this kingdom. And today, that's where we're going to kind of open up. And we're going to look at really a, a, a teaching of Jesus, a parable of Jesus that's really going to preach itself. Uh, so this is an easy one to draw from today. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And so let's uh, read this together from the word of the Lord. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and where he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. And then the second story from this, mess, this passage today, starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled with many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion from which it will not be taken away from her. So we're going to see a couple of things in this passage, just like we saw that, that a believer is someone who forsakes all else and sets their mind on kingdom things and sees and knows Jesus. Today we're going to see really simply two things, that the follower of Jesus is motivated by love and forgetful of self. The, the follower of Jesus is motivated by love and is forgetful of self. And the thing is that these are two very seemingly simple things that we're going to have to have the Spirit of God working in our lives to accomplish. It's very difficult to truly be motivated by love. The word love has almost lost all meaning in our modern culture. By love, we mean not what we see in romantic comedies, not what we see in sitcoms named love, not what we see in books about love. We're talking about a biblical, agape, self-sacrificing, Jesus-on-the-cross-shaped love. The follower of Jesus is motivated by that type of love, not niceness, self-sacrificing love. And then the follower of, of Jesus is someone who's going to forget themselves. And we're going to see this illustrated in these two stories. And so the first thing we're going to see today is that the follower of Jesus is motivated by love. And we see this in this famous passage of the Good Samaritan. And if there's one person who I think um, really understood uh, the, the pa parable of the Good Samaritan really well, it's uh, somebody that you might not, not, might not think who it is, but it's somebody named Vincent Van Gogh. Okay, so I'm going to show you a, a painting that Van Gogh had of the Good Samaritan. It's a little blur, a little stretched on the screen, but you can't really tell because it's Van Gogh and it's kind of stretched and blurry anyway, uh, so it doesn't really matter. But uh, this, uh, this is a famous painting of, of Van Gogh's. Now, the thing is, and I'm going to like, I'm just going to be nerdy for a couple seconds, uh, and I apologize. I promise next time, I think I've done like a couple nerdy ones in a row, so next time it'll be like football, and we'll talk about football or something. Uh, Reestablish my manly credentials. But today, we're going to talk just a little, for, a, for a real quick second. So a lot of people know like, okay, Van Gogh, like he, you know, he painted Starry Night. Uh, maybe you remember like, oh yeah, he, 
he cut his ear off and sent it to a girl in a box like he had mental health problems. Um, but maybe that's all we really kind of remember about him. One thing that, that I think is interesting that a lot of people don't know, he didn't want to be a painter. That wasn't what his like, initial calling in life was. He actually wanted to be a pastor, and he actually became a pastor. That was his career right out of school. He trained for ministry, became a pastor in the Dutch Reformed Church. At the time, though, the Dutch Reformed Church was not, uh, was not what we would necessarily call a faithful church. Not that they were not orthodox, they had the same, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, that the theology, we would have been like, man, their theology is on point, you know. Uh, we would see pretty eye to eye with a lot of the things that they, that they said. But the church was dead when it comes to exhibiting a life of following Jesus. Their lives were not marked by that. In fact, it was a position that Van Gogh's parents wanted him to secure because it came with money from the state, a guaranteed income for life. So anybody who became a pastor is pretty much they're securing a good job for themselves, a good-paying, respectable job. Well, this is not the idea. If, as anything we know about Van Gogh, he was, he was pretty extreme, okay? He, he was extreme in pretty much everything that he did. So he, he got assigned as his first pastorate to this little coal mining town, dirt poor town. And he took the teachings of Jesus very literally. He took the Bible very literally. And so he's literally, his parents come up to visit him about a few months after he goes up there, and he's almost starved himself to death because he's taking every bit of money that he has, every single bit of income, and he's using it to, to he's giving it away. He's paying for other people's food. He's living in abject poverty, worse than what most of the coal miners are living in. And to, to the point where they have to kind of remove him from that situation because of his own health. But a lot of it's also because they're embarrassed of him. Because it's like, you're supposed to have this respectable job, but you're not being respectable. You know, you're supposed to have this position, but instead you're living this way. So from that point forward, it's not that he never necessarily gives up on faith in God, but he very much, because of this experience, does not love the church, okay? So, so I want to show you this next picture here for a second. And this is one of the things, maybe you've heard this before, but I don't know if you've heard it or not, but he, there's a lot of churches in Van Gogh's work, and Van Gogh is, knows, is known very much for the light that he puts into his paintings, but there's never light in any window in any church that he ever puts in any of his paintings. The windows are always dark because he doesn't believe that, that God is present in the church anymore. And the irony there is that we're supposed to be the light of the world. And very much so in Europe at the time, the light was pretty much gone from the church. They were not being salt and light in the world. We'll come back to this in just a second. I want to talk to you a little bit, though, about the Samaritans, because it's another important uh, aspect of this passage is the Samaritans. So understanding why this is such kind of an extreme story. So the Samaritans, uh, you can see the area of Samaria up here on the map. And so, uh, you know, Jesus was coming from uh, near the Sea of Galilee, and they were moving down to Jerusalem. And, you know, there was a couple different ways you could go. Most people tended to go down through the Jordan River Valley, but you could also go through kind of the mountains of Samaria. And we remember just very, you know, like last sermon, I believe, um, there was a t he kind of wanted to go through Samaria, and his disciples were surprised, and the Samaritans were like, no, nah, you're not coming through here. And they kick the dust up on their feet, and they, they move away from there. So we see this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And this tension had existed for, for many years, okay? The Samaritans... Um, 
were descendants of the northern kingdom. The Jews were descendants of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the, the northern kingdom was, if you remember, you know, way back a thousand years before this, there was this divide after Solomon. Uh, and, you know, the northern kingdom, they had their own ideas about where the temple was, about where God was supposed to be worshipped. And so I'll show you, you can see this picture, this next slide. Uh, so this is, this is actually Mount Gerizim. And uh, it's in the town of, of Nablus, which is in Samaria. And this is where the Samaritans believed that God was supposed to be worshipped. So in the Old Testament, they traced a lot of uh, God appearing to people uh, at, to, to this mount, Mount Gerizim. And so they had a temple there, and they believed that the true worship of God was supposed to be at Mount Gerizim in Nablus. And uh, so we see people try, you know, the Samaritan woman try to bring Jesus into this debate. And we see this kind of on the periphery of a lot of things that are happening in scripture, but that's kind of the context that we understand this story. In a lot of ways, the, the, the Jews are going to see the Samaritans almost in the same way that, that modern Christians today, Orthodox Christians would see like Muslims or like uh, Mormons, maybe. Like it's, it's, a, it's a group that has come out of their belief, they have this roots at the same place, but they've deviated from orthodoxy, and they're not, they're not part of that anymore. And so what Jesus is going to do in this parable is, is basically like saying, like, I'm going to show you that in a lot of ways, like a Mormon or a, a Muslim is going to know more about love than you do. And so you, you can begin to start to see kind of how radical of a statement that would be for these folks. And so for, for, for the, uh, the looking at the story itself, when we're trying to understand this follower of Jesus being motivated by love, we see them contrasted with the priests and the Levites. The priests and the Levites. Now, a, a priest, is a, it has to be a Levite, but a Levite doesn't have to be a priest, okay? But both of these roles are like professional ministers, all right? Maybe you got the senior pastor and the music pastor or something like that, you know? Uh, something like that, okay? They're professional ministers. They're people who are, uh, who are bound by maybe some stricter laws. And some interpreters believe that probably what's happening in this, this situation is that the priest and the Levite are walking, and they're not allowed to touch a dead body. And so we see that this uh, person on the side of the road is, is like half dead. So they're probably unconscious, could very well be dead. So rather than go check to see if this person needs help, which would be the loving thing to do, they say, if I touch that person, that's going to make me ceremonially unclean and unfit to, to kind of minister. And so I'm not going to break the law. I got to go away from this situation, got to go away from this person. And so we're, then comes the Samaritan down the road, the person who, by all accounts, should have, want to have nothing to do with this person, uh, an enemy of a Jew. And yet he's going to see this person in need, and he's going to take care of him. He's going to, at great cost and expense to himself, uh, he's, whatever he had planned for that day, he puts those plans on hold. He sacrifices of his time. He sacrifices of his energy. He pro is providing medical care. He's putting him on his own horse, taking him to an inn, putting him up. This could be a month. He's saying, give me his bill. I will take care of everything for this person. So it, it would have been enough, we would think, say, for him to go get some help. It would have been even greater for him to be like, man, he stopped and took care of this guy. Then to take him and put him up and say, I will pay for everything. His bill is mine. He's going to the very extreme 
for what someone might do in this situation. So the point is not to say uh, that the Samaritan in this passage is an orthodox believer. Okay, That's not what the point is trying to, trying to be. But the point that, that Jesus is trying to make to this, this doctor of the law, this lawyer, this person who's challenging him, is that, that he is missing the point about what a neighbor was. If we look back to the, to the beginning of this passage, before he gets into this, this sermon, the thing is, this lawyer, this teacher of the law, it's not a lawyer like we would necessarily think of. It's somebody who uh, is a theologian who debates the, the law from the Old Testament. Somebody who is in with the Pharisees on kind of deciphering and debating what hundreds of laws somebody who is a believer in God are supposed to follow. And so he's wanting to trap Jesus is what he's trying to do. He's wanting to catch Jesus messing up in his interpretation of the Bible. So he's trying to lay a trap for him. And so Jesus basically throws the question back on him. He's like, okay, see, I'm showing you, you already know the answer to your question. You're not trying to ask me a question for, to actually learn anything. You're just trying to catch me in something. And so the guy's like, well, I'll take it one step further. What is a neighbor? And that's when he's going to kind of flip the entire thing around on him. Again, trying to show to him, like, look, you're like that Levite and that priest that's far more concerned with the tiniest like stroke of the law that you miss the opportunity to show love to somebody who is in need. And Jesus is going to show him, you're, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question should be, who can I be a neighbor to? Not who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? Jesus is telling this story to people who think that the best way to show love to God is to obey the 613 commandments that they have deciphered and laid out and said, this is the way you follow God. Here's 613 laws. Follow every one of those things. And that will earn you the love and favor of God. For them, eternal life is to be won by meticulous observance of religious rules and religious customs. I go to, to church and I do these things and I check off these boxes and I believe this certain way. This lawyer for whom religion is a set of restrictive laws is not interested in the question he asks, but is just trying to catch Jesus. And here's the problem, that every works-based religion on earth has to set the bar low enough to where human beings can potentially meet it, okay? The thing is not that Jesus is showing we don't, that, that, the, that the bar is too high. Jesus is actually going to show him in this passage that the bar for God is much higher. Okay, so, so 613 laws, a human being could potentially follow those things. A human being could potentially meet that. Sure, it's difficult, but you could devote your life to it and you could potentially do this thing. I love one of the things that Tim Keller says. He says, we, we tend to, to limit for, who, for whom we ex exert ourselves. We do it for people like us, people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. In this story, he shows that anyone who needs, regardless of race, politics, class, religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is a brother or sister in the faith, but everyone is a neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Before we see, though, how Jesus flips the tables on this lawyer. We need to first 
look at ourselves in the face of this lawyer, this mirror that Scripture holds up to our face. Because I think it's too easy for us a lot of times to, to read a story like this and we're like, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Okay, that's the bad guy. We don't like the bad guy. But we have to ask ourselves, how are we often thinking about people as in or out, as included or excluded, instead of thinking them as a neighbor? How often are we judging and condemning and arguing instead of extending mercy and grace and love? How often are we more concerned with getting things right, with thinking the right way, with ascribing to the right things, and not extending the love and grace and mercy that Jesus does in the gospel? Do we give ourselves a pass on self-sacrificing love of others because we have good theology? Do we follow and admire people because they're nice people with good theology or because they're self-sacrificing, humble people who are following Jesus? Who do we admire? Who do we respect? Who do we want to be like and become? Do we love people because they're kind of like us? because they're not offensive, because they're good to talk to, and then exclude people who are hard to deal with, annoying, offensive in some way, bother us, mess with our preconceived notions or ideas. Jesus is going to flip the tables on this lawyer, but he's going to flip those tables on us as well. The question is not, Who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? And the answer is shocking to them and to us. Anyone who needs love and grace and mercy is our neighbor. Another theologian said, what is at stake then now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity or whether we'll see it as a call to extend the love and grace of Christ to the whole world. Think about that. Am I using the gospel and the teaching of God's word as a way for me to then kind of isolate myself off and say, like, I've got it figured out, we're good? Or are we using it as a a launch pad to extend the love and grace and mercy of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the most needy, the most desperate for love and grace in our community who are very often not going to be easy to love. They're going to require sacrifice. They could hurt us. They could take advantage of us. Think about how this Samaritan opens himself up to being taken advantage of. He doesn't get references. He doesn't know this person by reputation. He hasn't checked his resume, hasn't checked up on him on social media to make sure that everything fits and they have mutual friends. He opens himself up to being taken advantage of. He opens himself up to abuse. Jesus completely flips the table. It's a self-sacrificing love. And that self-sacrificing love is what makes a neighbor, not the neighborhood that you find yourself in. And that's the tough part that really should hit us. The Pharisee asks, how much do I have to forgive? The, The lawyer says, how much do I have to give? What are the things that I need to do to earn God's favor and to earn God's love? What are the duties and observances that I have to make? And they'll spend all day parsing those exact specific things. How much 
do I have to give? But Jesus says, you're asking all the wrong questions. Instead, we say, in my kingdom, we never stop forgiving. Seven times, no, 70 times seven we forgive. He says, how much can I give? Not how much do I need to give? Is it 10%? No, how much can I give to what God is trying to do and what he's trying to accomplish? How much can I do? What, not what's the bare minimum. Do I need to go like, what do I need to do here? Come on, let's work this out. Do I need to go to church two times a week? Do I have to go to life group? If I go to DNA, do I have to go to life group? Do I have to do all these different things? I mean, like, what do I need to do to make God happy and to make God love me and to get people off my back, okay? No, he says, he says what can I do? How can I be used? Not what am I going to get out of this, but how can God use me in the lives of other people? How can he use me as part of this church? How can he use me in this community? How much can I give? How much can I do? Even to the point of giving everything. Because who is our greatest example of this love? It's Jesus who literally gave it all for the sake of of people who did not deserve it, of people who did not earn it. Now, this would normally be the point where I would try to qualify a lot of this for you to make us all, including myself, feel a lot better about what this message is actually saying to us. Because Jesus just ends it with, go and do likewise. All right? So I'm not going to try to do that right now, actually. And so I'm just going to leave it to the Holy Spirit to work in your own heart and your own life. And instead, I'm going to show you this picture one more time, okay? And I'm going to tell you about Vincent's brother, Theo, for a second, okay? So there's this interpretation of this painting that I don't know if it's true, but I like it. So I'm just going to say it right now. So uh, there's this interpretation of this painting that this is actually, so this painting was actually made in, in 1890, and it was made right after Vincent had to be checked into a mental institute, okay? So he, he painted this right after he was checked into a mental institute, and it was his brother who paid for everything. His brother paid for everything his whole life, his younger brother. So his younger brother, Theo, was an art dealer, uh, not much of an artist himself, but just kind of appreciated, mainly because of his brother, appreciated his brother's art. I don't know if you know this, Van Gogh never sold a single thing his entire life. He died in poverty. He never had any money at all. He uh, had no money. And so his brother supports him completely. His brother pays for his mental uh, visits. His brother kept every single letter that his older brother ever, ever sent him. Uh, his brother would constantly write him encouraging letters. Nobody else liked Van Gogh's work. His brother was constantly encouraging him, constantly uh, you know, encouraging him in his, in his mental health, in his life, in his love of painting, in his passion for it. Um, and then, and so there's this idea that, that this is actually, so the, the Good Samaritan here actually looks a lot like Theo. And like Van Gogh is the one who's on the thing. He's kind of sh illustrating, this is what my brother's doing for me. When nobody else was there for me, he's kind of picking, giving up everything of his own to kind of pick me up and put me on this thing. And the, the reality is Theo really did give every single thing. He actually, after Van Gogh died, Theo died six months later at only 33 years old. Kind of a lot of it out of sorrow for losing his brother. Literally gives everything. I'm not trying to give you a message on supporting the arts. That's a great thing to do. But what I'm trying to tell you is that we need to find something that's worth giving everything to, to love with that same kind of burning 
compassion. And we have the one thing that's worth giving it all for. We have Jesus himself. Jesus tells um, this story about a man who gave and kept on giving. With the gospel, with the love that the scripture teaches us about, it's love without end and love without bottom. And then he says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. That's what he's calling us to. I would love to tell you, like, you know, but you don't got to be radical about it. But that's not what the scripture says. He says, go and do likewise. And so that's what we're called to do. And now we have this second story that I want to cover very briefly. And that's going to show us that the follower of Jesus is forgetful of self. The follower of Jesus is forgetful of self. And this is this story that's often called the story of, of Mary and Martha. But in, in reality, I think this is really, I think is one that's misinterpreted a lot of times. I think this is really just kind of a story about Martha in a lot of ways. Um, it's, it's often seen as like Mary versus Martha. But the thing is, like where this story takes place uh, geography-wise, it probably didn't actually take place right here time-wise. Luke has brought this back right behind the story of the Good Samaritan to kind of show a point. And I think if we look the very end of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 10, He's kind of building several things into what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, and like I said, we, we've seen you know, that he's calling people to, 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 you know, to, to leave earthly attachments behind and to, to look to Jesus and to know Jesus and to set their mind on kingdom things. And now we see in, in this story of the Good Samaritan, he's calling people to a radical kind of love for God and for others. Um, and now he, he's going to then look at somebody who I think... Martha is someone who, in all honesty, is really kind of, of doing what he's teaching in the story of the Good Samaritan. She's somebody who really is, is putting her love into practice. She's kind of putting her love into practice. She's opening up her home for Jesus and the disciples. She's serving, okay? So she's taking this love that she has for Jesus, and she's serving. She's, she's opening up her home to him. She's loving him. This is the kind of person, man, you love to have in ministry because this is the kind of person that's working. They're, they're behind the scenes. They're, you know, they're doing what they need to be doing. Okay? But the problem here is, is not that, that so much that Jesus is saying, like, don't do what you're doing, Martha. Don't open up your home and serve and, and cook for people and those kinds of things. He's not saying don't do that. Instead, do what Mary's doing. What he's saying, what, what Martha gets in trouble with is she's, at the end of the day, and we'll find this as we grow as Christians a lot of times, there's always going to be more opportunity for growth, and we're always going to find more areas where we're kind of falling into temptation. And so for her, she's out of a genuine place, I think, trying to serve Jesus, but then she like looks around and is like, man, am I the only one who's doing this? Like, Mary's like just kind of hanging out there, like, why is she not doing this? Like, you know, and so what it ends up becoming, the problem is not that she's serving, the problem is that the attitude with which she's serving. She's thinking about herself and thinking about others instead of thinking about Jesus for whom she is doing this work. And so we have uh, Martha who's, who's serving in these ways, but she's starting to feel a little bit sorry for herself, a little, maybe a little proud of herself. And so that sin starts to slip in. And while other people would look from the outside and think like, man, she's really got it all together. At the end of the day, Jesus sees to the heart and knows like it, it doesn't really matter if your heart is not in the right place. 
If you're thinking about yourself and not thinking about him. If you're doing it out of motivation for like, man, you want to pat on the back instead of, you know, you're, you're doing it out of love for, for Jesus. And, and here's another as a danger for those of us who are saved by grace and, and have the theology and are growing in, in sanctification. We start to feel good about ourselves. We start to feel like, man, I'm kind of I'm deserving of a pat on the back. I'm kind of deserving of God's favor. I, I look at the world around me and I'm like, man, they're not doing anything. They're just coming to church and hanging out. I'm kind of working. I'm working behind the scenes. I'm volunteering and stuff. I'm giving some money. I, and I start to feel pretty good about myself. Now, yeah, I was saved by grace. But now I'm growing in holiness. And, I, man, like, I, I kind of get that pat on the back. And I see the other people. I'm like, hmm, they don't know what they're doing. You know, I'm, they're just coming here and just trying to see what they can get every single week. One of the worst periods in my entire life, I have to be really honest with you right now, there, I had this idealistic idea getting into ministry. I was like, man, I just want to give everything for Jesus. I want to be that radical. It just like serves him. Like, and, and so going to ministry and, you know, you know you're in your, your 20s or whatever and you're in full-time ministry and you're like, man, I don't care if I don't make any money. Like that doesn't matter. Like I'm just serving for Jesus. I'm just serving Jesus, you know. And, and so you go out there and you do this. But then you realize like, okay, life is actually still kind of hard. And some people aren't going to like you. And some people are going to be jerks. And some people are going to be mean. And, and you're going to have bills to pay still. And they don't care if you're in ministry. They're still going to knock on your door and ask for you to pay those bills. And you got to still do your taxes. And, you know, if you don't, you're going to get into trouble. All right? And, it, and things start to pile up on you. You start to realize, like, you know, just because you want to follow Jesus and you love him and you want to serve him doesn't mean everything in your life is going to be perfect. And it's easy for you to start to feel sorry for yourself. It's easy for you to start to, to doubt God's goodness. You're like, God, I'm serving you. I'm loving you. I'm giving you all this stuff. I'm trying to live my life the right way. And yet, man, this person I love still died. Or, man, I still got sick. Or I got fired for a bad reason. Or, you know, I, th you know these things in my life are still happening. Like, I'm supposed to be living for you. And none of us are, like, theologically going to be like, man, I believe in the prosperity gospel. And if I just do that. But that, that same kind of idea still starts to slip into us. I still deserve a little bit, God. Come on. Look what I'm doing for you. But we, we, when we truly realize that everything we have is a gift of God and nothing that we deserve, even our sanctification, even our faith, even growing in holiness, and we forget ourselves and look to Jesus so that we're truly serving for him and not for the pat on the back, and we're truly living for him and we're not looking at others and saying, like, man, they're not as good as me. We're not worried about those kinds of things because our life is for him. So we're that, we're that good Samaritan, but also one with faith in Jesus and also one who's, who's serving them and loving for the, the love of God and not for the love of ourselves and not for what we get out of it. And the best example we have of this, the best example is Jesus. And I love this passage in, in Philippians 2. He says in verse 5, Paul says this about about Jesus, he says, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. So do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and get this, amongst whom you shine as lights in the world. Think about those churches with no lights on them. It is a, an image in my mind ever since I, I read about that when I was in college. I don't want to be a part of a church that's not a light in the world. I want to be a part of a church that's it's just about meeting and, and just activity. I want to be a church that's a light in a dark and dying world that holds up Jesus and the gospel is good news to people who really need it, who are near death, who are dying on the side of the road, who have nobody to help them. That's the kind of church that we're called to be. That's the kind of people that we're called to be. And as we become the kind of people that Jesus is describing in Luke, a people who are kingdom-minded, who are focused on Jesus, whose eyes are set on the cross like Jesus' were, who've been changed by the gospel, who have the love of God in us, who are forgetting ourselves but serving God out of love for him and love of others. Look, we're not going to be perfect at that. And, and the point of the message today is not to say like, look, I'm going to condemn you because you're not that person. We all need Jesus because at the end of the day, uh, we're also the person who's half dead on the side of the road. And Jesus is the true good Samaritan who's coming and picking us up and giving everything of himself to sacrifice and save us. Okay, He's doing that so that we can then go and do likewise. All right? so, so he's the one who works in us to make us into that person. So it's not a message of condemnation to us, but it's a challenge for us to say, man, look at what Jesus has done for us. We're dying on the side of the road. We were lost. We had nothing. Everything had been robbed from us. Everything had been taken from us. And Jesus came and gave it all for us. Love that knows no end. Love where there is no bottom. And he's called us as his people then to go and do likewise.